Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to the Applied Ballistics Podcast. This is our episode one. So we're uh, excited to do this project and bring our listeners some fun and interesting discussions from AB staff as well as other leaders in the industry. My name is Amanda Wheeler. I've been with Applied Ballistics for three years. Um, it's been fun and amazing. Um, I handle marketing for Applied Ballistics. I'm also a very new shooter. So we're going to be using that approach, um, appealing to um, beginner shooters to help them become better shooters. We're planning on some discussions and topics relevant to today's shooters in the long range, PRS, hunting, ELR, and other shooting aspects. Um, so today we have Mitch Fitzpatrick and Chris Winky. Uh, I'll let them introduce themselves in a moment. Um, welcome, guys. All right. Yeah, good to be on. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for uh, having us on the show, Amanda. <laughs> You're welcome. So um, we're all uh, still doing our stay at home, stay safe um, for our uh, global pandemic quarantine. <laughs> fun um so how's that going for you guys oh it's going pretty good uh can't complain i've been been able to do a lot of shooting a lot of uh getting outside up here where i'm at luckily but so i can't complain too much but but you did miss out on your college graduation yep yep that kind of sucks uh you know honestly more than the more than just the ceremony itself you know getting to hang out with friends and kind of, you know, finish it out right, but, uh, you know, it is what it is, and uh, I'm getting ready to start work, and that's going to be a lot of fun, too, so I'm not too worried about it. I'm not too broken up over it. Well, uh, just is what it is. <laughs> well, that's good. I know um, myself and everyone at AB is super excited to have you on full-time and, and uh, to be able to utilize you for your knowledge and skills, so we're super excited about that. Yep, me too. I'm uh, I'm glad we're finally getting to start full time and not have to worry about you know going back at the end of the summer type of thing. So it'll be good. Uh, it'll be good to be here to to stay. So well, yay! I'm glad. Um, all right, Winks. So tell me, how's how's quarantine going for you down how's, there in Texas? How's the quarantine been going down here in Texas? I feel yep. like things have kind of uh, taken a turn for the worst, not because of the pandemic at all. But because my wife and I started watching uh, the latest epi episodes of Ozarks, right? And there's a scene on the Ozarks there where um, Ruth has this uh, guy that's inter interested in him and uh, interested in her, rather. And um, it, he brings her French toast, right? And she's kind of like turns around. And she's like, I prefer French toast sticks. Now, <laughs> what the, in my worst Southern accent ever, right? I was but, just going to um, say, I love your Southern accent. <laughs> <laughs> but there's, there's the, 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 I guess the result of that is there's still things that I haven't really like uh, tasted or experienced over here since like coming over to the States. And so I turn around to my wife and I'm like, what are French toast sticks? And she's like, <laughs> oh, you don't know what French toast sticks are? So she took me to this place in town. We went and got these French toast sticks. And I couldn't even like get a word out. I'm too busy stuffing these French toast sticks into the maple syrup and then into my mouth. And I'm like, oh my God, these are delicious. <laughs> and, um, anyway, so I feel like things have kind of 
taken a turn for the worse because, you know, if we continue on down this path, like Thursday is French toast stick day now, I'm going to be like 40 pounds overweight soon enough. You know? so, so you had you had some French toast sticks this morning then? Uh, not this morning. It's happening later today. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, you guys are so tired from the French toast sticks already. This is fresh, yeah, this is the result of recording. They're not just for breakfast anymore. <laughs> it's a, I, I figure it's an all day event. You know, I French love toast it. Is suitable for breakfast, lunch, dinner, you know, brunch, midnight <laughs> snacks. <laughs> That's hilarious. Well, I'm glad you uh, got to experience American French toast sticks. <laughs> in a memorable, in a memorable moment. That's funny. Okay, so, <laughs> so in preparation for this, I've been doing some studying. As I mentioned earlier, um, I'm I, before I came to work for AB, I had shot handguns, you know, with my husband and friends, and but I never really had experienced any kind of long range shooting and um of course working for ab um it just is inevitable to happen i think at some point in your um time working there so once i got to do that i was ready to be all in um it's so fun and there's so much um it, it's not just shooting there's there's skill and there's math and there's science and um there's so much to learn so that you can stretch it out, um, you know, beyond 50 yards with a handgun. You know, you were, you know, you guys are shooting out to two miles and, and more. So um, I, I've, I've been trying to absorb and I ask a lot of questions and try to learn. Um, but one of the things that I've been recently trying to learn about is um CDMs and PDMs and what all of that means for a shooter and how you use it. Um, so I'm, I'm pretty excited about uh, discussing this with you guys and, and getting to learn a little bit about it. Um, before we jump all in, um, can you guys each maybe just give the listeners a little um, background on your shooting history and um, what you do for AB? Uh, Chris, you can start. Yeah, no worries at all. So I kind of uh, grew up in the country in Australia um, and from a pretty young age, I uh, started out my uh, sh shooting debut with a uh, with the old little 177 air rifle and then quickly progressed to the uh, 22 rimfire and uh, started pushing that um, a fair way out, just uh, hunting uh, feral vermin and, and uh, rabbits and foxes and that as a young kid. And then um, quickly came to realize that the 22 rimfire wasn't really cutting it anymore. So when it got a center fire at that point, you know, needed a bigger gun. And so um, I started long range hunting in the mountains uh, where I'm from in South Australia. Um, and that kind of set the, uh, the stage for getting into the military as well. Um, spent a significant amount of time in the uh, Australian sniper community um did a bunch of sniper courses there and uh, spent the bulk of my career in the sniper community as well um since then i kind of came over and started the position as training manager with ab and um that previous experience in my sniper career is correlated across very well to uh helping train 
people in effective application of long-range shooting and ballistic solver um, and external ballistics as well. So um, when you started with AB in the training division, um, your tell, tell us a little bit about um, what you're doing with the training division. Yeah, so basically we founded training division in uh, 2018 and the intent with uh, TD is to provide the end user, the uh, their shooter with the in practical information um, necessary to be able to apply um, that information or that science in a setting where it crosses over to hitting more targets. And there's so much like misinformation out there when it comes to uh, training entities, um, companies that are pushing various like pieces of information or uh, misinformation in terms of um, training techniques or shooting techniques and use of uh, AB solvers and whatnot as well, that we felt it necessary to bridge the gap to end users, to the shooter with the most correct, like factually correct information so that the shooter could have the best opportunity to apply that information in a practical setting and um, in turn, you know, enjoy more success hitting targets in whatever their chosen shooting objective is. So it's kind of been a, a pretty long road in the last few years. It's been extremely busy, uh, but very rewarding as well. We've worked with uh, many military, military and law enforcement entities. And in our um, spare time, we've been working with some civilian uh, shooters as well and um, it's been great watching uh, watching shooters grow and develop their skills abilities and um, basically watch that uh, grow into what it's become now that's awesome it's exciting I've, I've enjoyed watching the progression of uh, training division as well um, all right Mitch why don't you jump in and give us a little uh, shooting history of yourself and uh, lead us into what you're going to be doing with AB. Yeah. So, um, I kind of had a, you know, pretty similar origins to, to Chris there, uh, albeit on the opposite side of the globe. Um, you know, we started off with a Nair rifle, uh, shot, shot a lot, uh, a lot of small game with one and kind of upgraded to the 22s. Um, just kind of the natural progression. A lot of us shooters uh, have gone through. And, um, I started getting into, uh, you know, bigger centerfire rifles and long-range shooting. Um, trying to think, would have been about 2012. Uh, I was in high school at the time, and um, I wanted to, you know, I wanted to start getting into shooting. And I happened across uh, a type of competitive shooting called F class. And uh, here in Michigan, I ended up. Uh, we used to have matches at Camp Grayling, which is the National Guard base, and on a, a weekend, we found out there was going to be a match held up there, and so we drove up and checked it out. Uh, didn't really didn't really have a good starting point, you know. I didn't really know what I needed to to do to get started. Started uh, talking to some guys, asking questions, and then uh, once I started asking a little bit more about bullets and that side of stuff, uh, you know, ballistics and whatnot. A couple of the guys pointed down the range and said I should go talk to a guy down there that he was uh, an engineer for Burger Bullets. And so I was like, oh, that, yeah, that'd be great. I've heard of Burger Bullets. I'm going to go down there and 
went down there and started having a conversation with, uh, you know, Brian. <laughs> he was there at that match and, you know, got some good information from him, went back and, you know, never, never really realized who he was or didn't really sink in at the time. And, um, I, you know, being in high school, I couldn't afford high end, uh, rifle equipment. So I actually had access to some mills and lathes and, uh, you know, basic shop equipment and, uh, started actually putting together my own rifles uh, with the help of my dad and some of my uncles and some local machinists that we knew. And so uh, I was able to actually put together some really accurate rifles and actually be competitive and start and start shooting. And, uh, one thing led to another and, you know, about a year later I was invited to shoot with the Michigan F class team, which, uh, Brian was a coach on. So, uh, ended up running into Brian again in a, a more official capacity, you know, got to spend a lot more time around him. And, um, I guess he kind of recognized how serious I was, you know, even then about long range shooting and, you know, learning how to do it properly and everything. And so, um, kind of from, from then on, we just, again, shot together on the same team. And, uh, I think it was about a year after that, uh, he started to have me do some work there before I finished up high school for AB. And that's, you know, that's when I started with AB. Um, it's kind of funny. I've been, I've been actually working with AB since, uh, I sh- should say when, when I started, uh, doing stuff with AB, the only person who's still at AB when I started is Brian. <laughs> um, <laughs> at that time it was just Brian, uh, his dad and his sister. And, right. uh, you know, it, I think Jennifer still might be involved in some kind of behind the scenes, uh, aspects, but you know, his dad doesn't work there anymore. And, um, so I, I kind of, it's funny when I think about that because everyone that works at AB now, when I started, you know, none of you guys were here. <laughs> um, I, I, I feel like you're, uh, like you have the, like the Cinderella story of applied ballistics. Yeah. It's just, again, it's just one of those unique things that, um, right place, right time. I, you know, I, I had the drive and the want to, I mean, I was obviously willing to, you know, build my own rifles to get in and do long range shooting. You know, I wanted to do it. That was kind of the, you know, I didn't really, I wasn't big on high school sports and stuff. Long range shooting is just kind of what I picked that I wanted to do. And, uh, you know, right place, right time in the sense that, you know, Brian was there and, you know, I got to know him and shoot with him and learn a lot from him. And, uh, you know, like I said, he recognized that this was something that I was really serious about getting into. And so, you know, that, that's kind of where the opportunity came, came for me with, uh, with AB. Um, so then, yeah, obviously from then on, I shot F class, uh, all the way through the, the world championships in 2017. I was on the, the U S uh, I got on the U S rifle team for, for F class there in 2015. Uh, I was the, you know, the junior world champion in 2013. And then, you know, I won a bunch of, uh, matches as a as a junior and then uh at the world championships in canada in 2017 i was the the high like the winner for the under 25 um class there for the by the international standards um and then as that kind of wrapped up was wrapping up in 2017 i'll actually before that brian and i had recognized that we kind of didn't we didn't really want our pursue f class long term because it didn't really fit with you know a b and what we do um as far as you know it doesn't require a lot of ballistics calculating and getting all your variables right uh because you're on a you're on a pretty defined range so i mean as early as 2015 i think we were already talking elr 
Uh, we had just heard of the King of Two Miles starting up, and Brian and I had kind of come to the conclusion that that was something we, we wanted to get into or look into or start doing. And uh, so then 2016 is when we put together the equipment, went to the King of Two Mile for the first time, and uh, I won that match, won the King of Two Mile with uh, you know Brian Litz and uh, Paul Phillips as the team. And uh, then got out of F class in 2017, but you know we've been doing the ELR, you know, hardcore ever since 2016. So that's kind of been our our main thing. And you know I've uh, been able to win a lot of ELR matches, uh, the King of Two Mile 2016. Um, I think I took third, or I think I took fourth at the King of Two Mile in 2017. I won the world's longest shot challenge in 2017. Um, Almost seems like there was another match in 2017, but it's oh the the NRA match. I won that the NRA ELR match in 2017. Um, I had to do a lot of college work in 2018 and didn't do nearly <laughs> as well in shooting in 2018. But uh, I think I redeemed myself back in, in 2019 and uh, I won the open division at the Night Force ELR match. That was a super fun match. Really looking forward to going back to that this year. I took fifth at the King of Two Mile again, and um, obviously this whole time, the last last five years, I've been up at uh, Michigan Tech getting a mechanical engineering degree with an aerospace minor, and uh, that's obviously just coming to a conclusion now, like we mentioned earlier, starting full-time, so um, I'll be full-time at AB as, a, as an engineer, uh, mechanical aerospace, whatever you want to call it, and... Uh, you know, I'll be doing a lot of work with the, the Doppler radar systems and, uh, you know, data processing for the CDMs and, um, you know, also just all the other types of testing we do to, you know, figure stuff out and help shooters get on target. So there's a lot of scientific work we do, uh, a lot of a lot of instrumentation that we use and, um, you know, having an engineering background uh, really allows us to, to put out some really good data and, you know, really learn stuff. So. Um, that's what I'll be doing. You know, I'll be, uh, well, whenever we can start taking the, the, sh the mobile lab to events, uh, I'll be rolling with that and, uh, helping guys get PDMs by running the Doppler radar systems and, uh, yeah, all that good stuff. Anything engineering related I'll be doing, I'm sure. <laughs> Yay. Okay. Well, we're, we're really glad to have you full time and, and, uh, excited about that. So um, leading up to us discussing doing this this podcast um, and what we were going to talk about and and making a list and all those things, uh, one of the, the things that I wanted to spend some time on and, and learn about more myself, which helped me think that there are other people who um, might need help understanding it a little better, is CDMs um, and leading into PDMs and, and what that does and why it's important to um, long-range shooting. Um, and so I, I read a bunch of articles online and everything I could find and looked in, you know, things that, that Brian and AB have put out. And um, I thought we would start maybe by talking about what um, ballistics, ballistic coefficient means and, and what, what that means to this. Okay. Yeah. So, um, I, the first thing I would mention when we go and have this conversation, you know, a lot of guys are already going to have our applied ballistics books, but I'd really recommend, um, people to go out and get, you know, applied ballistics for long range shooting. 
Um, because if you if you don't have a a decent base understanding of what's going on, um, it might be kind of hard to understand. You know what's going to come out of this conversation. Um, okay. So I would I would recommend getting that book, and then you know maybe if you don't really get what we're going to go in and talk about, you know, being able to follow along in the book or go to that chapter and actually, you know, read about it and then compare that to what we're saying. It might help, help you get it a lot, uh, a lot more clearly. Um, and, and, so that, sorry, what's the, that? Sorry, the marketing, the marketing person needs to add. Um, you can visit our website at applied ballistics, LLC.com to purchase those books. <laughs> yep. Yep. Directly from our website or, uh, I believe we have a bunch of dealers all over the place that uh, carry the books as well. So they do, and, and Amazon as well. Yep. Yeah. So with that little caveat out of the way, um, the first thing you have to understand about a ballistic coefficient is that the ballistic coefficient number doesn't directly correlate to the actual drag of the projectile. So the your drag coefficient of a, a bullet depends on the velocity of the bullet and by velocity you mean Mach number so relationship to the speed of sound and the shape of the bullet so uh, when you shoot a bullet at different velocities it has a different drag coefficient and by drag coefficient we essentially mean uh, how much force the air is applying on the bullet uh, to slow it down in flight and we need to know that force to be able to calculate our trajectory. So that's why the drag coefficient is important. With a um, so with that understanding, you have a, essentially you end up with a graph or what we would call a drag curve, and that is the relationship of uh, the drag coefficient to the Mach number, like I was just describing. And so when you shoot a bullet and you measure the the velocity decay you essentially get a a drag coefficient you can uh a, a drag curve which is this graph this relationship between Mach number and uh your drag coefficient and you when you shoot it obviously it's slowing down as it goes down range so you can uh measure the the difference all these different uh you can measure the difference in drag at all these different velocities as it goes down range um, historically, you know, before, you know, anyone really had Doppler radars that you're measuring bullets with, um, this was done experimentally with lots of different, uh, shots and they're testing at many different ranges, you know, they're getting the velocities and they're measuring velocities downrange. And they did this with standard projectile shapes. So when we say like a G1 standard or a G7 standard, what that means is that this drag coefficient curve, this drag curve, was measured and developed for this specific bullet shape that is called the G1 standard. And there, you know, there's G1, G2, there's all these different ones, and then there's G7. Uh, and the reason that became important is because the G7 shape that they developed this drag curve around is a very similar bullet to the modern long range bullets with a, you know, relatively sharp nose and a boat tail. Uh, and again, this was done because of our ability to, to measure and gather this data, right? Like we didn't, it wasn't feasible to go and do this with every di different bullet. We did it with these standard shapes and we established these, uh, these graphs, these drag curves. 
So now, once you have that, essentially what you'd use a BC for, you know, obviously we've got our G1 BC and our G7 BC, is you pick the standard bullet that matches the shape of the bullet you want to shoot as closely as possible. And so you've got the curve for it, and now you shoot this new bullet that is a similar shape but not perfect. It's a little bit different. This new design, uh, you know, just a different bullet, different manufacturer, uh, you know, however you want to describe the difference. Now when you shoot that bullet and you start measuring the drag, you're not measuring it uh, at every – um, at every short interval to de- develop a, a complete drag curve for that bullet. You would shoot it at range or you would measure the velocity at just a couple points. Um, you know, you'd measure it at the, the muzzle and then you'd measure it downrange and you'd measure the velocity decay. And you're like, okay, if I used the drag coefficient curve from this G1 standard, I end up with X amount of error to compare to what I just measured or experienced with this new bullet. What a BC does is a BC essentially scales the drag curve for that standard bullet so that it lines up better with the new bullet that you're shooting and you're trying to use. So if your new bullet had less drag than the G7 standard, you would need a... um, you end up with a you know a BC number that scales that drag curve. I think I said less drag, so it scale that drag curve down. So overall, across the board, over all Mach numbers, the drag coefficients are lower, and now your um, your calculations line up much better, and your velocity decay and your drop match up with what that bullet should be. Um, so that's that's what a BC, a, G, a BC does. Whether it's G1 or G7, you're just comparing your this new different bullet to an existing standard and scaling that drag curve, those drag coefficient values versus Mach number. Um, I kind of kind of lost my train of thought. Are you following along, Amanda, or is there uh, anything I, you want me to no, go back I, over? I am. So, um, there's more than, so I did not know this. There's, there's a G2 bullet. Yeah. So there's all these different, uh, G standards. Now the the reason why we don't use those is because those shapes, um, don't really match any of the bullets that we shoot as long range shooters. Um, it just never really made sense for, for the industry to standardize around, you know, either the G1 or the G7. Okay. So we at Applied Ballistics mostly focus on G7 though, correct? Yes, because modern long range bullets are pretty much all boat tails uh, with a, you know, a, a longer, sharper nose. Uh, so they more closely match the the shape and thus the, the drag profile of the G7 standard. Um, okay. Throughout history, or historically, I should say, the G1 standard was used because, uh, you know, for a lot of years or a lot of decades even, uh, you know, bullets were flat base and they had shorter, more blunt noses. And uh, that much more closely matches the shape of the G1 projectile. Uh, So that's why that was used. And because that standard was just in place and that's what everybody used, everybody understood G1 BCs. 
um, even when we started getting, you know, higher performance, long range bullets, people still wanted to use G1 BCs and, um, that'll kind of go into the, the next thing I was going to bring up. And that is when the more that your bullet is different from the shape of that standard. So again, going back to the example of the G1 standard that has, um, you know, flat base and a more blunt nose, when you're trying to use that standard to uh, represent the drag of a boat tail, long pointy nose bullet, like a, you know, one of our modern burger hybrids, the drag shape, the, the, you know, the, the drag coefficient to Mach number, you know, so velocity relationship is quite different for that shape versus the G1 standard. And that, that error manifests itself as essentially needing different BCs for different velocity ranges. Um, so if got, you know, a lot of people might be familiar with Sierra bullets and Sierra has always, uh, posted, uh, what they call like banded G1 BCs on their website for their bullets. And that's because these long range bullet designs, uh, when they're using the G1 standard, they have to, they have to put up different BC numbers for the different velocity ranges because you're, you know, your BC quote unquote changes downrange. Uh, but it's changing due to the curve fitting differently and needing to be scaled differently at different velocity ranges. Um, and so Brian saw this and he's like, you know, from an engineering scientific standpoint, this doesn't make any sense. Uh, we already have this other standard that exists that is like a much better fit for the bullets we're trying to use. And we don't have this complex issue of having to deal with um, you know, different BCs for different velocities, and you don't have to have a solver that you have to, um, you know, put in banded BCs. You have to say from 3,000 feet per second to 2,500, the BCs this, and then from 2,500 to 2,000, the BC changes to this. And uh, to get away from all that, uh, or at least to get away from a lot of it, that's when, uh, you know, Brian and Berger really started pushing the G7s because, uh, you know, we had these bullets that were very close matches to G7. And so that when we used the G7 BC, it just worked a lot better. You didn't have these big errors uh, at different velocity bands where you needed to um, plug in a different number for different velocity ranges, uh, which when you're shooting up close and by up close, I mean like, you know, probably inside a thousand yards uh, for a lot of stuff or maybe 600 yards is a better example. Um, you know, classic, like just long range standard distances that guys shoot that G1 problem didn't really manifest itself as much because your bullet wasn't slowing down enough to really get into different velocity bands where um, you needed different BCs. Uh, now, if you know, maybe like a 308 or something at 1,000 yards, you, you were getting into that. But, uh, you know, I would say like 600 yards or so. And that's why G1, essentially why people got away with G1s for so long is because the problem didn't really show itself. Well, you know, when, by the time Brian's uh, coming on the scene and working on stuff, you know, we're, we're trying to shoot beyond a thousand yards. You know, we're shooting 1200 yards, 1300 yards, 1500 yards, a mile plus. And when we started doing that, that's where the G, the, you know, the issues with the G ones really showed itself. And, you know, Brian identified that the G seven made way more sense to use. And, you know, that's when that really started being pushed so that we could kind of simplify the data and just use an overall better model.
I think uh, let's bring this back to uh, baseline for a minute for the practical like shooters that don't have such a grasp on it, Mitch. Uh, you kind of like gone gone deep down that rabbit hole, uh, you know, in true engineering form. <laughs> so I think what I'll do now is try and provide the the translation between the engineer and us normal shooters, and yeah, uh, we'll yeah we'll go the, from that. I'll let you put the Australian uh, backwoods spin on it. Okay. So, <laughs> or outback. I guess you call it the outback it, down there. Yeah, back, I was going to say, is it backwards or is it the right way? Uh, so, <laughs> all right. So I think to set the baseline, to summarize what a BC is, right, it's a measure or it's a, a value of how well a bullet penetrates the air and how well it maintains velocity. And the way that that BC is calculated is uh, using some of the uh, bullet attributes and then also uh, the form factor of the bullet itself as well. So it's determined by the bullet weight, the bullet caliber, and the form factor. So your next question is probably like, well, Chris, what is a form factor? Um, and to describe what a form factor is, a form factor is basically the individual drag of a bullet to, compared to a standard bullet. And that's the standard bullet that Mitch was uh, speaking about just earlier. You know, we typically reference G1 and G7 BCs in the, uh, the longer range community, uh, depending on what your understanding is of the uh, G1 or G7 standards. And so when you're referencing a form factor, it'll also be like a G1 or a G7 uh, style form factor in the sense that that form factor was calculated and generated comparing the individual drag of that bullet to the drag of that G1 or G7 standard bullet, right? So it's basically like, okay, this bullet flies more efficiently downrange um, and penetrates the air better then the this standard or it doesn't fly as efficiently and it doesn't penetrate the air better um, and so it's less efficient and so when we talk about form factor uh, values right it will be expressed as like a uh, a lower form factor would be a more efficient bullet and a higher form factor would be a less efficient bullet so as an example a bullet with a form factor of like 0.95 is experiencing only 95% of the drag compared to the standard. So it's like 5% more efficient, right? Whereas a bullet with a form factor of like 1.10 is experiencing 10% more drag than the standard, right? Does that kind of make sense so far there, Amanda? It, it, it does. So tell me, it, when, when you're shooting, what is that 5 or 10%? What does that mean? Uh, in terms of like practical aspects, like yes. what where that carries over. So, you know, if you, when we talk about long range, right, it's all about like, you know, when shooters try and select a bullet, they're trying to select a high BC bullet or another way to determine like what type of bullet you want to use is by looking at the, the, the form factor itself. And that's how I uh, compare ballistic merits of bullets i look at the i look at the form factor itself during bullet selection because it gives me a very good indication of whether that bullet is more efficient or less efficient um, than the standard that it's being compared to and it's like a very apples to apples comparison right but in terms of like the practicality of that what we're trying to do is utilize a highly efficient bullet 
that cuts through the air exceptionally well that has the least amount of drag or experiences the least amount of drag possible as it flies through the air so that it can maintain as much velocity as possible and it will experience the least amount of like uh, deterministic and non-deterministic like uh, um, external ballistics effects, right, as it flies downrange. So we're like trying to buck the wind. We're trying to reduce the amount of drag that that bullet's going to experience by using a high, highly efficient bullet um, so that it'll, it'll maintain velocity um, further downrange. We'll get extended supersonic range out of that before it hits trans and subsonic, right? So there's like many, many, many uh, benefits um, or many considerations when it comes to bullet selection. But, you know, and correct me if I'm, I'm wrong, Mitch, but it, it, to me, it seems that when people look to select bullets, it's all about basically defeating the, uh, the aspects of external ballistics that will push you off target. Yeah, I mean, you're looking you're looking to minimize your uncertainties, right? And so, you know, wind is an uncertainty. Um, the more drop you have to account for, you know, there's more uncertainties in your adjustments and, um, you know, all that good stuff. You're running to adjustment limitations. So, yeah, I mean, the, the name of the game with hitting targets at distance is, you know, minimizing your uncertainties. And the higher of BC bullet you have, um, assuming it's consistent, that uh you know that's that's what you want that's how you do that yeah absolutely so then i guess like the next thing we need to discuss amanda is the differences between those g standards um you know the design differences because that's something that you know a lot of people don't really understand so a uh, a, a g1 standard will have like a um it'll have a flat base right so it has no boat tail or anything like that and it's got like a short fat ogive as well right so it's like a very inefficient uh, bullet design for long-range shooting, as opposed to the G7 standard that has like a, a longer, pointier or sharper ogive that's like very efficient at cutting through the air, kind of like, uh, you know, pushing your hand uh, through the air with a or taking your hand and putting it outside the car window while you're driving it, you know, 60 miles an hour and opening your palm to the, the frontal air pressure um, or putting your hand like forward into the air pressure where it'll slice through, right? There's like, um, as you know, you, you turn your hand to go fingers first into the, uh, into the frontal air pressure, right? There's gonna be a lot less force that your hand's gonna be more efficient at cutting through the air in that, um, in that capacity because there's like less uh, surface area that's being um, presented to the uh, the there's less frontal area that's being presented to the airflow, right? So right. Um, my point being with this, like the G7 uh, standard, it has that longer pointier uh, ogive, and so it's more efficient at cutting through the air. And then it also has this boat tail on the back end, which is um, you know. Uh, more efficient at reducing base drag and uh, a few other things like that. So if we are typically like interested in shooting long range shooting, like long range shooting, we want to go ahead and utilize a, uh, a bullet design that 
is maximum efficiency to reduce drag and um, allows us to, you know, retain velocity and, um, you know, is, is the most efficient for uh, hitting targets at long range. And so one way we do that is by utilizing a bullet design that's similar to the G7 standard. So that's kind of why we talk about the G7 uh, BC in the office, because it's more representative of a long range bullet design versus, you know, a G1 style bullet design. I feel smarter already. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's amazing. Um, So I, 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 I shot some, some long range guns with, with you guys on, on the range and at the lab. And then I went and got myself um, a 22 long range gun. And that was when I decided I, I should probably start figuring out how this works instead of just asking you guys to, well, what bullet do I need? What ammo do I need? You know, can you plug this stuff into my Kestrel? Maybe it's time for me to start learning how to do these things on my own. So that that's kind of where this is all going. And I'm super, I feel very um, lucky to have such a wealth of knowledge at my fingertips. And I wanted to be able to share that with other people. So thanks, guys. So I, think, I think too, Amanda, um, with the G1 and G7 standards, it's also important to note that like, there's a misconception out there. A lot of people think it's just one single bullet, right? Like one single G1 standard, one single G7 standard. Like that's not not correct, really. Like there's not one physical bullet. There's one uh, standard design, right, for the G1 and G7. But that uh, design, it's uh, scaled relative uh, to the, um, the bullet caliber. And so if the... Uh, if you were comparing a bullet to, uh, let's say we took a 50 cal uh, bullet, right? We were comparing that individual bullet to a G7 standard. That G7 standard would be scaled down to 50 cal. Um, if the if we were comparing a 308 to a G7 standard, that G7 standard would be scaled down to 308. You know, like they if you were to scale them up or down, right? They would be exactly the same, but it's relative to the uh, it's like a, a scale ratio, right? It's relative to the uh, caliber of the bullet itself it's been compared to. Uh, Mitch, you might so, be able to speak more on that as well. So there's a, a, a G7 model for a 22 and all the way up to 50 cal. There's it, it That scale changes per the caliber? Um, yeah, you go, Mitch. So, yeah, so a good way to relate this back is to, to what... Uh, Chris mentioned about the the equation of how we calculate BC based on the the form factor, and then you also so you have the form factor, which is the actual like shape of the bullet, the the drag shape essentially. But then you have to um, factor in the caliber and weight of the bullet to get the BC. Um, because like what I was talking about before, where you know your BC is essentially shifting the the drag curve um in order to align with this different bullet that you're shooting you know you have the standard drag curve and now we need to shift it that shift is really taking place with the the form factor number because the form factor is the actual like change in drag um 
like like Chris was talking about, you know, your percentage differences in form factor are your percentage differences in uh, drag. So then to get your BC, you still have to factor in the essentially your weight and diameter uh, to get your sectional density. It's essentially the, the form factor with the sectional density. And so the way uh, the the reason for that is because when you're trying to essentially calculate how quickly the bullet is going to slow down, because that's, you know, that's ultimately what we're trying to do here, because once we know that, we can then calculate drop and wind drift and all that good stuff. The, you know, if the, the diameter of the bullet and the weight of the bullet, you know, have a large impact on that beyond just the, uh, the form factor shape itself. So once we factor all that in together, that is how the uh, the solver knows, you know, essentially how to how to treat that bullet in regard to uh, calculating the velocity decay. You, so basically, Amanda, you're kind of giving the solver this number, and the solver's like using that number, and it's like, okay, this is how I know the uh, the standard performs, and this is the number that tells me how this bullet performs compared to the standard. And so it's able to uh, go ahead and calculate um, the resulting, you know, effects that we utilize the Kestrel to determine, you know, such as drop, drag, wind, uh, wind drift, et cetera. Okay. So and, and I guess like... Go ahead. Uh, so I guess the other link I need to uh, make here, uh, Mitch was kind of talking about uh, velocity bands um, for G1 BCs, right? And the reason that was like necessary when using a G1 BC is as we were talking, like that BC has been calculated on form factor. And if you're, if the amount of drag that that bullet is uh, experiencing is changing with velocity and your BC is calculated using form factor, um, for that reason, that's why like if you're shooting a, modern long range uh style design bullet and you're comparing it to a g1 uh beast like a g1 standard or you're referencing a g1 bc it's not going to be very representative uh standard to compare that modern long range bullet to because that long range bullet's going to experience different amounts of drag at different velocities as it flies down range compared to what the g1 style bullet design is going to experience and for that reason um, you know, because that form factor is constantly changing with that modern long range bullet and it doesn't compare well, um, or it doesn't correspond well to the G1 standard. That's why you're kind of forced to use those G1, uh, BC velocity bands. If you were going to use a G1 BC. Now, the good news is for listeners, the easiest thing is to just go ahead and utilize a G7 BC because, the G7BC, as I was saying, is compared to that uh, G7 standard that is very representative of a modern long-range bullet. And so when you compare the individual drag of your individual bullet that has the same uh, bullet, bullet anatomy or attributes as like the G7 standard, the, um, the form factor uh, average remains very consistent or very, uh, very close across the entirety of the uh, velocity and the amount of drag that that bullet's experiencing as it flies down range. And so as a result, 
you get a very uh, accurate average BC across velocity bands that um, encompass the, um, the, the drag that that bullet's experiencing compared to the standard, um, like for a, 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 for a large amount of the trajectory. Does that make sense at all there? It, it does, yes. So the the G the G seven and the the BC numbers that you get when you buy a box of um, burger or um, you know Sierra or whatever ammo that number comes from testing with from that specific company. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. Yes, yeah, Sierra tests tests their own BCs and they put those numbers on their box. Um, you know, part of the reason why you know Brian got involved in measuring BCs and started AB to begin with is because a lot of companies weren't even doing that. They were just calculating BCs. They were coming up with you know formulas and stuff on a computer to just estimate what the BC was and putting it out there. Um, but a lot of times there was ten plus percent or more of error. And essentially, they were putting out numbers that were almost useless. You had to kind of reinvent the wheel yourself anyway. Um, so that's really one of the reasons why Brian started AB. So great, it is – go ahead. I think the great thing about that too, Amanda, is like because we are supported by the AB laboratory, you know, the laboratory is generating all of that data and doing all of that testing for shooters. And so – um, the shooter doesn't need to worry about generating their own individual inputs or trying to, you know, test the ballistic coefficient of their individual bullet that they want to shoot because they can't rely on uh, on the manufacturing BC that's uh, provided. And, you know, sometimes uh, BCs, they might be overinflated for marketing purpose, purposes. Other times uh, the BC that's on the box is just representative of what that company uh, has in terms of their capabilities for testing. Like some companies might only have a hundred yard or a hundred meter range. And so they're, they're forced to test the BC of that bullet on that range there. But that's, uh, that BC is not representative of a, um, um, of like an overall average across a, a larger, uh, velocity range because it's, it's a short range, um, test that was done at high velocity. So right, there's a few okay. like aspects there that you need to um, be aware of. And, you know, sometimes it's not uh, intentional and then other, other times it's uh, sometimes it is intentional, unfortunately. And um, that carries across to people enter their, uh, their BCs into ballistic solvers. And, you know, sometimes they don't understand what G standards they're referencing and, so they, they plug in a G1 and reference a G7 or vice versa. They plug in a G7 and reference a G1 um, standard. And that all generates uh, error in the trajectory prediction of that firing solution. And then so, unfortunately, rather than uh, questioning the inputs that the, uh, the shooters utilize, they, they typically turn to the solver and go, oh, this thing, you know, it doesn't get me on. So that's just a few a few things to be aware of, at least. So I guess, Amanda, if you've known anything about me, uh, you know, working together at AB for the last like two or two or so years, it's that I like to use analogies to explain certain aspects of external ballistics, right? And, um, you know, the things that are involved with that. 
So I guess to roll into that, right, I'll use this analogy. And let's say we had like, you know, um, three different uh, cars, right? And let's say the first one was like an old uh, farm ute, right? Or farm truck, as you guys call it over here in America. Um, and let's say the farm truck represented the, uh, the G1 standard. And then we had this uh, Lamborghini sports car too, right? Um, and let's say that Lambo represented the G7 standard. And then we had this uh, Ferrari Spider, right? Which is uh, this other sports car that represents the individual bullet that we actually want to shoot for long range, right? So we take this, uh, this old farm truck and uh, we roll it down the strip, right? Um, and we record like the performance that we get out of that old farm truck. And then we're like, all right, this is the performance of this old farm truck, uh, which is again, representing the G1 standard. And we're gonna take this Ferrari Spider, which is uh, the analogy for our individual bullet. And we're gonna compare the performance of this, uh, this old farm truck to this Ferrari Spider. Um, but we're not actually going to drive the Ferrari Spider down the strip to actually get the, the raw performance of that, that car. And we're going to, you know, determine what the, the performance is or what the performance that we expect out of this uh, Ferrari Spider to and compare it against the old uh, farm truck to try and figure out predictively, uh, like, how well that car is going to perform down that uh, strip or on that racetrack, right? And um, I guess that would be a representation of, you know, taking a modern long-range bullet and then uh, comparing it to a G1 standard, that, that G1 standard design that doesn't necessarily fit or work well with a modern long-range bullet design. So then let's consider, all right, we, we've, we've determined that, a G7 BC might be a better BC to reference because it's comparing a, uh, the, the BC of that individual bullet to a G7 standard design. You know, we've kind of discussed that that design's more representative for modern long range bullets. So we go ahead and we take this Lamborghini, right, which is our analogy for the G7 standard, and we run it down the strip, right? and we determine what the performance is of that Lamborghini. And then without, again, without using, uh, actually running our Ferrari down the track, we try and compare what type of performance we would expect out of the uh, Ferrari when compared to the, uh, the Lamborghini. And from that, we can kind of predictively model how that, uh, you know, that Ferrari is going to perform compared to the Lamborghini. So our individual bullet compared performance compared to the G7 standard, right? And then let's say like, uh, you know, when it comes to custom drag models, so I know we're going to get into this a little bit further, but um, we actually take that Ferrari Spider and we run it down the strip. And we're like, all right, this is actually the performance of uh, this car. So i.e., this is the actual performance of this individual bullet. So why compare the performance or why try and predictively compare the performance of this, uh, this car to the performance of some other car when we can just run that actual car down the strip, measure its exact performance, 
And then we have a direct comparison of the performance uh, of that car because we've collected the performance um, of that car by actually, you know, running it down the strip. So in that case, you'd be before you'd be comparing the performance of the Ferrari Spider to another Ferrari Spider. It's going to be very uh, predictive, right? And that kind of represents what we're doing with custom drag models. It's the individual drag of a bullet that's been measured over Doppler radar compared to the drag of that individual bullet, you know, a drag model that's been generated for that individual bullet. So it's not referencing like a G1 or a G7 standard um, in that case. Uh, Mitch, do you have anything to add on that? Uh, yeah, a little bit, but that that's really good, Chris. Um, just while you were talking about it, I actually, it kind of clicked in my head on how we could take that a step further even for PDMs, which is where we're measuring uh, you know, the, it's essentially a CDM for your individual rifle, bullet, everything, you know, your ammo. So, uh, again, with this example, when Ferrari builds the Ferrari Spider and like, we're going to introduce this as a model, they run it down the track and they get a, a speed or, a, you know, a set time, a set performance level. And they're like, the Ferrari Spider's this is how quickly they can do a, a quarter mile drag strip. That's essentially like what we do with a CDM, right? We measure a bullet from a company and we, we put it out there and say, this is representative of all of the bullets or all of this model of bullet from, uh, from burger or from Sierra or whatever. Now we can build on that a little bit further and with a PDM. When you go out and buy your own Ferrari spider, you run it down the track and you find that yours is actually a tenth of a second faster than the standard Ferrari Spider that um, you know the that Ferrari said here's the speed. Yeah, so that, that last line. that last little bit of refinement is like your specific drag model for your lot of bullets out of your rifle. It's not the it's not just your model of bullet out of you know what we say is all of them from this specific company or this specific model. Um, it's that last little bit of refinement to where you say, okay, I know I'm buying a Ferrari spider. I know Ferrari spiders do it this fast. You know, they've been tested down the track. This is exactly their performance level. But then when you take your specific car and you run it, you now know that exact last little refinement down to tenths, hundredths, thousands of a second to what yours is capable of yeah right you understand or you're you're now measuring the exact individual performance of your individual car i.e or like you know to cross that over the individual performance of that individual bullet through your individual gun right it doesn't get much better than that in terms of uh, trajectory prediction accuracy yep exactly so to kind of bring this full circle and just reiterate to clarify for people this whole entire analogy is about finding out how quickly the this specific car, this Ferrari Spider, can complete this course. The first example, G1BC, you have a truck. You know how fast the truck does it. You're trying to use the attributes of the truck compared to the Ferrari Spider to estimate how quickly the Ferrari Spider can do it. There's going to be error there. It's not going to be. You're not going to get exactly how quickly the the car can do it based off the truck. Now you've That's got the. What's that? 
that's not going to be too pretty, that, that calculation. No, exactly. <laughs> the Lamborghini, your G7, much closer. You're going to have a much better data point uh, to compare and use it as an estimate. Now, when you go to your CDM, which is just the actual, you know, the the standard Ferrari Spider from Ferrari, they've, you know, I say they, we, AV, we've run it down the track. We're like Ferrari Spiders. This is exactly how fast they can do them. And, you know, an asterisk by exactly in the sense that when you buy a Ferrari Spider, you've got your specific car, you run it down the track, and, or we run it down the track, and we can determine that that car does it in exactly this amount of time, which might be, it might be exactly the same as like what the frac- the factory says it should be, or it might have just a slight difference due to some, um, you know, minor lot variation essentially. And, uh, you know, that's, that's the level of refinement and the kind of the progression as you, it's kind of a, an extreme example, but that's the, the progression of, uh, uh, precision with performance, uh, going from a you know a G1 BC to a, a PDM, uh, you know within the, the AB ecosystem. It's funny too because I mean we spoke earlier, uh, Mitch, about how you could kind of get away with uh, a G1 BC back in the heyday when you know we were only shooting five six hundred odd meters or something like that, and you know the uh, velocity of the uh, modern long range bullet hadn't dropped uh, low enough yet that we were. Uh, seeing some amount of trajectory prediction error because we weren't using G1 velocity bands, right? Um, and then, you know, obviously uh, we had um, the G7 BCs come into play where uh, Brian uh, introduced that into the uh, shooting community there and supplemented that with a solid, you know, unbiased objective uh, G7 BCs to go with many modern long range bullets as well. Right, basically the testing to go with that. And then from that, we've uh, gone ahead and gone, okay, some of those uh, G7 BCs or some individual bullets don't perform uh, very uh, very comparatively to the G7 standard through trans and subsonic. And so there's some small amount of uh, trajectory prediction error in that, um, dependent on like the individual bullet and the drag that that individual bullet's experiencing through trans and sub as well, right? And that, you know, was a function now of, like, being able to have the technology that pushes the, uh, you know, trajectory prediction out to further ranges. And we're like, all right, well, we really need something now that is going to capture the drag of the bullet through trans and subsonic. So we go ahead and um, generate a way to, like, capture custom drag models of individual bullets, and that's all well and good. And now we're like using CDMs to, you know, get hits on targets at, you know, two two miles during like ELR comps, like king of two mile comps and that. And then now we're like, well, there's still these uh, these small variables that exist in individual weapon systems with individual bullet lot numbers and that and it'd be really great if we could just measure the individual drag of of the individual bullet lot through the individual weapon and that would be uh the most comprehensive and most accurate way to run a drag model in a trajectory uh prediction um or in a solver and so we come up with this but it's funny that all of this uh all of these technological advancements in 
trajectory prediction have all come about um, as, you know, innovation has continued to uh, push AB and push the industry to try and establish more accurate means of uh, generating firing solutions, you know, accurate trajectory prediction at ELR ranges. So, you know, it's, it's, it's just funny you kind of, you kind of uh, set it yourself in those steps, but it's just something interesting to note. Yeah, for sure. Is this making any sense, Amanda? It, it is. So I'm, I'm wondering about um, what, so you have these, these, um, these bullets and, and you make your ammo and you have your, your CDM um, that you use from our bullet library. And so now you are at a match and we're there with our um, mobile lab and we're going to let you get a PDM. How, how much, what difference, how much difference is there in that CDM versus that PDM? So we're shooting and getting CDMs with um, guns that we have in the applied ballistics lab, right? Yes. Yeah. So yes. a CDM is going to use one of our standard barrels on one of our, uh, uh, test platforms, you know, we've got all the various calibers and twist rates and stuff to to test a, a bullet in the pro- proper configuration. Right, which is um, a side side note, a lot of fun to do. Um, Chris and and Chris have let me come out and and pull some of those triggers, and it's a lot of fun. But um, <laughs> so so um, so you you have that from from an applied ballistics lab gun. Um, and then you're at a, you're at a match and, and applied ballistics is there with our mobile lab and you lay down with our radar and it's your specific gun, even though it's a, a 375 or a 65 Creedmoor or whatever you're shooting, even though it's the same caliber gun that we're using to get the CDM, how much difference is there between my 6.5, your 6.5, and the lab 6.5, and what causes those variations? Am I making sense what I'm asking? Yeah, you make perfect sense there. Uh, Mitch, do you want to start this one, or do you want me to start yeah. this one? Mate? Yeah, I'll, I'll caveat this by saying there really is not much difference. It's okay. at this point, um, we're reaching a level of precision that is really only necessary, I would say, for, um, you know, really the, the highest levels of, of competition and precision. You know, even, you know, most guys shooting a thousand yards, uh, say in like a PRS match, um, it's not really like you put it this way, like you can easily win matches still without having a PDM. I, I'm not being the best salesman for PDMs, but I'm trying to put things in practical perspective for people. Right. Okay. Um, it is the most accurate means of predicting a fire solution that you can get. So, I mean, if you're trying to run your six, five Creedmoor out to 2000 yards, just because you want to, uh, or you're shooting a match like the night force ELR match, which Again, that you're, the 2,000-yard target isn't going to make or break that match, but, you know, you're trying to hit it. We all want to hit all the targets at these matches. Yes, we do. You, you need that, like, 
at those extremes, that's where you need that um, that level of detail in your firing solution. So, um, well, the differences aren't much, and honestly, most of the differences aren't even really like in the barrel per se. Like, it really comes down to more of like launch dynamics, uh, and that's a whole other thing that could be a future podcast topic. Uh, you know the difference of like using a suppressor using a muzzle brake or using nothing at all that has an effect on your launch dynamics and ultimately how your, uh, your PDM would turn out. And so the vast majority of people I would say would probably like a CDM is going to do everything they need it to do. But if you want the most refinement possible and you know, the ability to just shoot as far as possible with the most accurate solution possible, then you know, come see us for a PDM when we're at an event. All right, guys. So um, we've been discussing this for a, a little over an hour now. Um, I wondered if you had any final thoughts for our listeners on the topic of PCs and CDMs and all the things we've been discussing here today. Yeah, so I think, Amanda, we probably summarized with some practical takeaways for listeners, you know, end users, practical information that they can utilize uh, to hit more targets, right? I think the first, the first thing is that uh, given the option, uh, shooters should be looking to utilize a CDM rather than um, a G7BC or, or a G1BC. Um, and then even better, try and utilize a PDM, like get to an AB mobile lab event um, and shoot over Doppler radar if you can and generate yourself a PDM. Um, and I think like, I assume we're probably going to go into CDMs and PDMs more in the, in the future. Yeah, I think if you guys are open to it, let's come back um, and uh, do another episode where we do the deep dive. Yeah, that sounds that sounds good. I think that'd be pretty beneficial for listeners. Um, so I guess then the the other practical takeaways that I really have on this is if you don't have the ability to generate a PDM or utilize a uh, a CDM, right? Um, know the difference, understand the difference between a G seven uh, and a G one BC and the standards that they're referencing, and understand how that relates back to the individual bullet. Uh, design that you're comparing that to you know if you're shooting a, um, a modern long-range bullet design with a, a, a sharper pointier ojo dive with a uh, boat tail you know it would go without saying that the g7 standard is a more representative standard of that bullet um, if you were shooting like a shorter fatter uh, blunter ojive with a flat base uh, style bullet uh, it didn't have a boat tile and it didn't have a pointy ogive. Well, a G1 BC would be a more representative uh, comparison to the G1 standard for that bullet design. But, I mean, you're probably not shooting long range at that point if you're shooting that, that style of bullet. Um, but my point being, just understand the two differences uh, there and what G standard serves uh, best for the application that you're trying to achieve. Um, and then also the AB laboratory has obviously gone through the extensive work of like testing individual bullets, updating bullet lots with updated BCs. They're providing shooters with G1, G7 BCs and CDMs 
And so all of that work has been done for shooters already in the background. You really just need to utilize it. You know, that, that information, those inputs, they're all at shooters' fingertips and uh, shooters should be referencing that information, utilizing that to, uh, you know, generate gun profiles. That, those inputs, that information has already been accurately and scientifically uh, captured. And so all of that work's been done for guys. Um, where where can where can shooters get the CDMs in our below library? So there's a few different uh, ways. If you're running the AB mobile app, uh, you'll be able to pull CDMs from the uh, the bullet library uh, for a small fee. I think they run for about two dollars per CDM. If you don't want to uh, spend the the two dollars on the CDM. Um, you can reference a G1 or a G7 BC from the library itself. Um, and then if you were running like a Kestrel uh, uh, 5700, you'd go ahead and download the Kestrel Link Ballistics app and you'd be able to reference the uh, AB Bullet library from within the uh, companion app there. And that will give you the option to pull a G1, a G7 or a custom drag model. Um, likewise, with the Garmin 701, that... Uh, device has the entire bullet library uh captured or like located inside the uh the device uh itself and so you would just be able to go ahead and and generate a gun profile referencing the cdm the g1 or the g7 bc whatever you're looking for uh from the device itself you don't uh, need any kind of companion app or anything like that to reference the drag model that you're uh, you're looking for all right, and if you're using a Bushnell um, Nitro to shoot with, oh, they yeah. also so, have an app that has our library in it as well. Yeah, I mean, we've got that many devices um, out there now that contain the AB software. Like, you know, the e AB ecosystem is growing so big these days that it's hard to keep track of, like, all of the uh, the, the devices out there or the manufacturers yes. that are got our got our stuff there out there but i mean that really that's uh that reigns true for the bushnell nitro and the sig kilo um lrfs as well both have a companion app very similar to kestrel link ballistics where you a user could go in and reference the uh um a cdm or a, or a bc from the bullet library there all right great mitch do you have any uh closing thoughts um yeah, I would say that, uh, obviously, like I mentioned before, I would recommend people get the Applied Ballistics for Long Range book um, to help clarify and understand kind of what we talked about today more. Um, and I would also add that, you know, if if what we talked about with BCs, if you found that kind of confusing and uh, hard to understand, because um, it, it's complex stuff, and unless you kind of like study this or you... Uh, spend a lot of time trying to, to figure it out or you've been shooting for a long time, it can be uh, it can be hard to grasp. Um, it's overwhelming would, for sure. Yeah, exactly. But I would say that like, you know, if you know a lot of what we talked about with the, the BCs didn't really make much sense, that's just that much more reason to use a CDM because we can, if you go use a CDM, you can more or less ignore all of that that we <laughs> talked about with BCs and just get to, the, you know, good data for a specific bullet design. Um, so that, that would be my best, my, my best, uh, summary of the whole thing is, uh, 
you can kind of leave all the discussion of BCs behind if you move to a CDM and things get a lot more simple. <laughs> right. We've, we've shucked the corn for you so you can just eat the corn. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> did you like that analogy, Chris? <laughs> I did. I did. I, I enjoyed I, that part. I was sitting here and I was like, I need a good one to throw at him. <laughs> yeah, that, that was good. That's going to uh, stay with me alongside my French toast sticks later this afternoon. Yay! <laughs> we shut the corn for you. So um, I want to thank you guys so much. Um, let's do this again really quickly. We'll do episode two. And I think um, doing a, a deep dig into uh, CDMs and PDMs and, and what that means for shooters and how it uh, can help you be a better shooter. I think that's a good good plan for our next episode. If, uh, if, and from, if anyone out there who's listening, if you have any questions or applied ballistics can help you in any way, there's a lot of ways for you to reach us. You can email support at applied ballistics, LLC.com. You can reach me at marketing at applied .com and, um, we'll get you where you need to go with your questions or if you have anything you need help with. Otherwise, thanks and have a great rest of your day, guys. All right. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you.